Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Just me and you. Buckle up. Okay, hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here, as always, with my close friend, Miguel. Say hello. I'm saying hello from six feet away. Yes, we're social distancing. We're actually here in the office on a Saturday. The state of the world is uh, shifted at the moment. We are in the grip of a global pandemic. Yeah, I think society is utterly, utterly disrupted at the moment. Hopefully more disruption will lead to flattening the curve. Just a couple of thoughts about the COVID thing. I think a lot of us have learned about flattening the curve. And I just want to take a quick moment to remind us all to thank the heroes, you know, the ordinary heroism that's occurring every day right now in in hospitals. And I don't mean just the nurses and doctors and in the grocery stores and in people that have lost their jobs, just holding it together and not losing it, trusting that we'll get through this. This is a a really intense time. Uh, everyone's impacted. Personally, for me, it's been on one hand, like there's what's actually happening, which is I've been um, isolated at home with my family, which isn't a bad thing. I've got my dogs. On the other hand, as a business owner, it's been pretty intense time to feel the fiduciary responsibility for my friends and team here. So there's a lot to be done, but this podcast is about beyond the heroes. You know, there's us and we got to carry on with our jobs and our roles in society. And here at Positive Energy, here at the Building Science Podcast, let's say our role is to educate and advocate. So we are the aspect of society that uh, engages in applying the sciences to buildings. This episode is going to kick off a deeper dive into the five principles, which are start with a good enclosure, minimize indoor emissions, keep it dry, ventilate, and filter. And this is a topic that we've quote-unquote covered, but we've never really covered it in a way that's been satisfying for me. Um, Specifically, right, we try to keep presentations to at conferences and to architects to about an hour. If there are five principles, each get 12 minutes, which is nuts, right? There's a lot to be said. And when I limit these things to 12 minutes, you know, to package them in convenient time slots, it, it feels very strongly to me like it's constrained so much that a lot of the value is there. It's kind of like I've said, oh, spices exist. And now you're supposed to learn to cook. Or something like that, right? You know, like, uh, how does that help? So we're going to be digging in in a more thorough way here, and we're going to go through these one at a time. I don't really know how long it's going to take, so Miguel and I are going to find a good stopping point, and then we'll just pick it up. So today I, I would like to try to get at least through a good treatment on start with a good enclosure. So a little, by way of a little introduction, I am going to start with a story. So I would like to introduce Brian and Alice, husband and wife. They're living in the Central Valley of California, sort of near Yosemite, beautiful place. Brian was the youngest of his siblings. He inherited the family home. Brian was in his early 70s when he decided to put his house into a uh, big energy retrofit situation. So he did a passive house retrofit of the home he had lived in his whole life. 
And for his whole life, he had lived in that home with asthma. I could get into the specifics, basically a wet crawl space, a lot of issues. By the end of the passive house retrofit, which was done for energy, right? He wanted to get into a net zero energy posture. Um, he realized over the next few months that he wasn't using his inhaler anymore. And as of this recording, it's about eight years since that retrofit and that I know of, I mean, I just talked to someone about this a few months ago, he is still not needing to use his inhaler. So this is a simple story, but it, it underscores the reality that the indoor built environment plays a critical role in our overall health and well-being, even if we don't notice that, right? Buildings have a very powerful, uniquely powerful ability to positively and or negatively affect our overall health and well-being. Thinking about paradigms generally, right? So that's story. A story is a paradigm. Um, well, actually, let, let's back up one tiny bit. So what is building science, right? So building science is the application of the physical sciences generally, that's like classic building science, like the Led Zeppelin of building science. <laughs> the Led Zeppelin. <laughs> would be, you know, physics. Um, and physics, you know, engineering is applied physics, right? So mechanical engineering, structural, civil, electrical. In my opinion, that's applied physics. Um, but also chemistry, ecology, biology, microbial biology, um, Genomics, there's all these new terms now coming out, like genomics, metagenomics, metabolomics, proteomics. Well, we'll be talking about those more in the um, minimize indoor emissions section. But two more things is one is that Positive Energy and you listeners are learning that there's a strong overlap between the health sciences and the building sciences. And a lot of us in the building science community are also aware that there's a strong overlap between the social sciences and the building sciences. And we've, we've talked about this theme before, but maybe there's some new listeners today. Fundamentally, what this means is we need to understand how to unlock the technological potential that we have for buildings. They could last hundreds of years. They could be net carbon negative. They could be uh, places where human thriving is actually designed in. Or they could continue to be economically optimized, you know, ego-gratifying um, eye candy, as though that's the extent of it. Um, so our goal is really to unlock the potential of our built world to help our society and to help our planet. That's pretty low, pretty, pretty high goal. The reason I started with a story is because one of the things that Miguel and I have been availing ourselves of, uh, along with Corey Squire here at the at Positive Energy, is we've been reading Donella Meadows' book, Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. And this is a social science book. This book is looking for leverage points in social systems, societal systems. And these leverage points, they're places where small shifts lead to global changes, right? And so if you imagine a, a lever, let's say you have this big, heavy relatively immobile mass, and that is the traditional practices of the architecture, construction, and engineering industry. And you would like to move it. You would like to get it moving in a new direction. 
Well, you put the lever under it, you put the fulcrum as close as you can to the load, and then you apply force on the lever as far as you can from the load. So if we talk about this, now we're talking about building science and social science. I'm going to do my best during this podcast to keep us on track of where we are. So the lever is under this traditional practice system, and we want to move it. We want to move it in new directions. So the first thing is we could talk about close to the fulcrum is products. New products have the ability to change systems. New protocols, so this is new codes, have the ability to change systems. New processes have the ability to change systems. But the biggest one are paradigms, right? So paradigms are stories, but paradigms are very powerful, um, invisible stories, kind of like air. Paradigms are invisible. And what I mean by that is paradigms are things like the earth is flat. The earth is the center of the universe, right? Um, Small individual actions don't matter on the global scale, right? Which I think that paradigm is is in the process of blowing up, thankfully. So paradigms are our deep-seated stories, and they're so deep that we don't even notice them. And when it comes to buildings, right, the paradigm we're telling you is that buildings impact your health and well-being, right? So that's our goal, and that's why I started with that story. And so I could tell you the whole story of indoor air quality in like, like one basic sentence or a couple sentences. And it's this. Uh, indoor air quality is quantitatively different from outdoor air quality. That means we measure things in indoor air that aren't in the outdoor air. Our bodies thrive in outdoor conditions, generally speaking. Um, but we live indoors, mostly. Indoor air quality is part of indoor environmental quality. So indoor environments have many aspects that impact human beings, right? There's the sound, there's light, there's thermal sensations, thermal comfort, which is conduction, convection, radiation. There are vibrations, there are odors. There is now what we will recognize and be talking about, the indoor microbial community, known as indoor microbiome. Um, There's the quality of the water that we expose ourselves to, right? So there's many things, but we're going to be talking specifically about how to optimize buildings in a way that the air that's in them, that we live our lives immersed in, is, is good for us. So healthy indoor air. Let's just, let's just talk about those terms for a minute. Healthy, well, before you define healthy, you have to define life, right? So what does it mean to be alive? Well, um, living beings convert energy from one form to another, right? So I ate my breakfast today and I had chemical energy that's getting combined with the air I'm breathing and I'm... Uh, that's causing mechanical movement of my vocal cords, which is creating pressure waves that are going into this microphone and gets converted from analog to digital. It's going into Miguel's laptop. And then, I don't know, he does some magic stuff and it ends up (laughs) going into, let's say, what does it do now? It comes back out of the speaker. It goes back into a pressure wave. It shakes little bones in your head. It creates nerve impulses. And that's called podcast listening. That's podcast. Yeah, so... It's interestingly, right? Like, so I'm having electro, electrical impulses in my brain, and the goal is to create electrical impulses in your brain. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't get lost in translation. So, that, so what we're talking about now is life, because we're talking about health. 
So life needs energy and resource inputs, right? Um, life needs those energy and resource inputs to grow, to evolve, to develop, and to reproduce. Um, it's going to get interesting here. We're going to talk about viruses. They kind of live at this shadowy nothingness between uh, life and death in some ways. And I don't mean just because they kill people, but they, they need a host. Yeah, that reminds me of the Matrix. <laughs> like, like humans. So life needs energy to reproduce, to evolve, to grow. And to the extent that living beings are accomplishing these things, we are, they are said to be healthy, right? So we want to be healthy in our, in our indoors. Um, humans have this other aspect of life, at least I, I hope all of us do. I, I know many of us do. Human health and well-being also requires um, beauty, Aesthetics, right? A sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, a sense of moving forward, accomplishment, working toward a common greater goal, right? A lot of these things, I think, are getting undermined recently by the efforts to constantly distract us and entertain us and put eyeballs on ads. So it's not just reproduction and food and shelter that we need, right? We need meaning, purpose, beauty, joy. So that's what it means to be healthy, right? So interestingly, the earliest, like the very first hats and t-shirts we printed back in 2008 for this company said, healthy home, healthy planet, right? So to be healthy in your home, you need a healthy planet to put your home on. And that is going to be another large theme. We've talked about it already on this podcast, but for today, we're going to stay focused on the home, on indoors, right? So what's indoors? Indoors is not outdoors. The home is the environmental separator. It's where you spend your time, right? So air, the last one. So air is um, not as simple as you might think, and your relationship with it is probably more um, up close and personal than you might think. More intimate, you could even say. Air is an invisible, compressible fluid. It's held to the planet by gravity. Air is molecules. Molecules are air. But from the, at the very basic level, we live our lives immersed in, kind of swimming around in this uh, air mass, like this giant sea of air uh, that covers the Earth's surface. We take it into our lungs 12 to 16 times a minute, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 365 days a year. Air comes into our body through the nose and mouth. It goes through our sinuses, our trachea, into the lungs, which are the bronchi and the alveoli. We're probably not going to talk a lot about this, but getting some of this sense here. Air goes into our body through these pathways, and then it, it, the business end of air is that it goes from these pathways into our blood, where the oxygen is used as fuel to help us break down our foods, or actually to help the microbes in our belly break down our foods or not just in our belly, everywhere. So once air comes into us, it goes, what was in the air gets into our blood, into our heart, into our brain, into every organ. Air is real. And um, yeah, so we'll just take it from there. And then, then we talked earlier about that outdoor air is different from indoor air. And indoor air has uh, some challenges, but that'll probably come up in the next episode. So... We are breathing 12 to 16 times a minute, about a half liter each breath. That's the tidal volume. That's the amount we take in and out. If you do the math on that and you do some exercise, so maybe you're a little more than 16 times a minute for part of the day, you get very close to or over 40 pounds of air a day going into your body. So this is about an order of magnitude, about 10 times more than what the typical person eats every day. 
and into our lungs is where the air goes, where it goes down to these very small balls called the alveoli. And um, I think we all know that our chest rises and contracts, or our diaphragm you know, pushes air out, and air gets pushed back in by the atmosphere when we breathe. But these little balls, like if you think of broccoli or cauliflower, those little balls at the end, that's, those are wrapped with very small blood vessels, and that's where the gas-to-blood exchange occurs. Those little balls actually expand slightly and contract slightly with each breath. If you take those little alveolar, alveolar sacs or alveoli and you, you know, spread them out to show the whole surface area of the inside of the sac and you do it for all of the alveoli in your lungs, how big is that? Well, it turns out it's about the same size as half of a tennis court, including the doubles, <laughs> double sides. So that's crazy, right? Our lungs are, the area in our lungs is profoundly big. And uh, this is the business end of our relationship with our environment. We all know way more about kale than we ever used to. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed. Yeah, I didn't love green vegetables growing up. But, um, and now our neighbor grows, what, like six different kinds? Yeah, <laughs> and he gives it away. Yeah, go Matt. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and so I've been reading recently, kale actually chelates the soil. It pulls heavy metals out of the soil, which means like, yikes. You want to be really careful about what soil you grow it in. But kale also chelates us. So if you're exposed to heavy metals, which ding, 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 you very well might be, uh, you might be breathing them in, um, then kale chelates us and pulls right. the... Pulls and we're not talking about Pantera. We're talking about actual heavy metals, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the point is that we, we as a society are getting far more sophisticated about our understanding of what we put into our bodies um, knowingly in the form of food and drink, right? I had never heard of kombucha until a few years ago, and now it's everywhere. Um, but we darn well should be thinking about what we put into our bodies in the form of our breathing, in the form of air. Here's a few zingers. Uh, this one's from the American Lung Association and the EPA, and it's just part of a larger quote. Indoor air is one of the top five most urgent environmental risks to public health. Mm -hmm. So indoor air, public health, right? So there's another science, right? The whole science of public health and building sciences. They are, wow, they're right now overlapping big time yeah. with the coronavirus. Another quote, this one's from the American Heart Association. The overall evidence is consistent with a causal relationship between PM 2.5 exposure and cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. The overall evidence is consistent with a causal relationship between particulate matter exposure, which occurs indoors uh, and outdoors, and cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, which means disease and death. Um, so that word causal, that does not come in lightly, right? These scientists do not put causal in. They'll talk about correlations and associations uh, long before they um, are willing to say something is a causation. And the last one, this one is just out this month. Uh, the European Society of Cardiology has done a study of air exposures in 2015, and the result is that globally, air pollution caused an extra 8.8 million deaths in year 2015. This is premature deaths in 2015. 
representing an average shortening of life expectancy of nearly three years for all, all persons worldwide. All right, that's the quote. Intense. Air and health are a big deal. Um, now, the next kind of logical chain is, well, where are we breathing this air? Um, and here we get into the National Human Activity Patterns Survey, which was done in 2001. And they did percent of time in different environments. But if you take the percent and you multiply the average lifespan, um, you can get the number of years in these environments. So with, a, with an average lifespan of 79 years, get ready. You, the average American will spend 70 of those 79 years indoors. They will spend 54 of those 70 years indoors, indoors in their home, 26 years in their bedroom, six years outside, which the air, where the air is generally cleaner, unless you're outside on a freeway or a chemical plant or something, and four years, four years of your life uh, based on a 79-year lifespan, four years of your life in a vehicle of some sort, car, truck, bus, plane, train, subway. So, and by the way, this was from 2001. Um, a lot of people, when I, when I give, this present, give this in a seminar, they raise their hand and they say, wow, if anything, I'll bet you we're a lot more indoors uh, in 2020 than we were 19 years ago. So we're breathing all the time. We're breathing almost all the time, 90% of it, 88% of it, indoors. And 70% of it indoors in our home. So if you think about it, when you're in your home, you are inside. You're literally immersed in a fishbowl of your own making, right? We talk about um, air conditioning, and we use that term kind of blithely or lightly. We just say, oh, it's air conditioned, which typically means the air is colder. Conditioning means conditioned for a certain use. It should anyway. It should be conditioned for what use, right? For your breathing use and your being immersed in it use, which means that you don't want to live in a place that's like a nicotine patch with um, transdermal uptake of chemicals from your environment, and you certainly don't want to be breathing in particles or gases that are known to be unhealthy. Um, and both of those things are, are fairly commonly happening right now. So it's a little intense and intimidating to think we live for 54 years inside a fishbowl of our own making, that's our home, and that as a society, we don't really treat that seriously. We don't, we don't recognize that reality, and therefore we treat it as just though it's visual and spatial and economic. But without sounding dark, right, we can also take that same fact and make it very cheerful. We can say, hey, check this out. You make your air and your home healthy, and then you, the majority of your life is spent in a healthy space. Boom. Right? Now you know why positive energy does what it does, right? Why we dove into residential mechanical design, right? It's not, oh, it is so not because it was lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard, y'all. I mean, we have the same courtship phase and intake process as a commercial project, but we have two, three orders of magnitude less. So that means we have to carry dozens and dozens of projects at a time, right? People will call up and say, hey, my kitchen. You're like, oh, which kitchen? I mean, this, is, this is hard. And then not only that, but then we issue our designs. Let's just go here for a minute, Megan. Yeah, sure. We issue our designs, and 
the architects and builders and installing contractors decide that, oh, they're too complicated because they're taking actual, you know, reality into account. And they don't say that, but they say, oh, it's too complicated and too expensive. And it's like, well, relative to too simple and too inexpensive, yes, it is. Um, so my point is that we, we don't get a warm welcome from the traditional industry that this design goes into. Um, it's, it represents a change and people push back against change. I will caveat it by saying Please, that caveat. many, many more people do now than they did 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The paradigm is, the shift is underway. Oh my gosh, yes. And, it, and so in fact, like our, we're headquarters in Austin and we're working in many other cities and um, That's where the rub happens is yeah. as we move into new markets where this is never Yeah, and I'm, I'm giving him meaningful eye contact, right? So, <laughs> so we've moved into um, the New York area, and it's been, been pretty straightforward. Seattle, straightforward. Portland, L.A., Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, less straightforward, yeah. right? Um, that's where we're getting some pushback, and, and it was, you know, it's understandable, but, um, you know, please, if you, any of you are in those markets, listen to this episode, share it with your colleagues, um, let's just have a full understanding of what it is we're making an opinion about. And I apologize for that little rant, but you know, this is really important and poignant. And over the next few episodes, you'll, you'll, you'll understand, I suspect why this is so meaningful to us. I prefer to think of rants as Shakespearean asides. Oh, there we go. I just had a Shakespearean asides. <laughs> So 26 years in the bedroom, right? You want a paradigm, here's one. The bedroom should be a technology to promote a deep night's sleep, right? We know what happens when we sleep, right? It, it dramatically affects our immunity, our productivity, and our overall well-being. And digging down a level, right? It, good night's sleep is when your cells heal, when they, when they recuperate, right? If you want fewer wrinkles, sleep more. Uh, sleep on your back. Or you don't get wrinkles on your cheeks. I'm just kidding. <laughs> sleep can help prevent cancer and reduce inflammation. It can make you more alert. It can make your memory better. You know, the, there's so many known things. It can decrease your risk of depression, right? Fatigue, stress, overwhelm. All the things we're dealing with right now because of COVID, we can really help if we went into a deep night's sleep. And you can take the same you and put you in a bedroom with lower particulate matter and lower CO2, and we could also impact light and vibration and sound. And we can have you sleep more deeply. The same you with the same stressors in your life can have longer, deeper sleep. Quick caveat, it's like that is statistically true. It doesn't ever apply to one person. If I took 10,000 people, put them into 10,000 bedrooms, and then put the same people in 10,000 bedrooms that have been optimized for indoor environmental quality to promote sleep, that's where I can see a shift. So sleep matters, conditioned space matters, homes matter. We are really on our game when it comes to food. We are much less on our game when it comes to air. Air can impact cognition. High CO2 can impact all kinds of functions of our brain. So basically things like just basic cognitive focus, uh, information usage, basic strategy focus, things like that. The higher the CO2 gets, the lower those functions get. And by the way, I've been lucky enough to have a CO2 sensor to travel with. Airplanes, very high. Buses, cars, most restaurants, most commercial spaces. They're easily 1,000 parts per million and up. Um, indoor air quality can affect your genes, right? It can get in and actually, like, so if, if a chemical comes into your body, it can affect, like, let's say you're pregnant with a girl, it'll jump down and affect your grandbabies, right? And 
So you can just Google indoor air quality and epigenetics to learn more about that. So indoor air quality can affect obesity. It can affect heart disease. It can cause strokes, right? The, the overlap of indoor air and our health is profound. We'll be touching more on some of these things when we get into minimize indoor emissions. So we're about to jump in to start with a good enclosure. And I am going to do a quick summary of all five principles, right? So first one is start with a good enclosure. And this means a good environmental separator. The enclosure defines the indoor conditions. So it's a good place to start. The second is minimize indoor emissions. The full sentence there is minimize indoor emissions of pollutants. That means things that aren't good for us. And the corollary is also true. We want to maximize the indoor emissions of things that are good for us, right? And this can eventually mean architectural yogurt, right? The probiotics for buildings. But for today, it means clean, dry, filtered, ventilated air. We want to minim maximize the emissions of that. And so that's going to be a big section. We're going to be talking about the fact that ours is a microbial world, which means a, a invisible world of very small beings that affect us, right? And the fact that very small beings can affect us is really prominent right now. And it's not just uh, these viruses that affect us. And, you know, there's subtle pervasive effects. So those two, um, excuse me, I didn't finish the second one. So there's ours is a microbial world and then that ours is a chemical world. We are living in the chemical age. We are exposed to many molecules that our bodies are not accustomed to and adapted to. And these two together, indoor microbial communities and indoor chemical uh, constituencies, they're very different from outside, and our bodies prefer outside. So uh, to help with that, we have the ability to keep it dry. That's the third principle, keep it dry. This is very simple. All life on Earth responds to aqueous chemistry, so it's a, it's a powerful level, lever to control that. Chemicals will emit and recombine. Frankly, the microbes will munch on the chemicals in our environment, and then you have these microbial, what are called metabolites, which mean you know, things that are downstream from being munched on in the indoor air, and a lot of these, microbial, these chemical microbial metabolites are actually worse for us, but this is going to be expanded on in the second principle. The third principle is keep it dry, right? And this one makes sense fundamentally because aqueous chemistry is, impacts all life on the planet. It impacts chemical processes. I'll leave it at that. Ventilate, of course, it's a good idea to bring in fresh filtered air and distribute it and mix it throughout the indoor space. Is this done? No. <laughs> Generally in homes, not. Uh, it's done begrudgingly. It's done um, in ways that are uh, rather fictitious as far as good indoor air quality and ventilation. And then a lot of times the homeowners will turn them off or the the contractors or the experts involved will say, ah, oh, let's not bring this outdoor air in. We live in a hot, humid environment, and it'll be a big energy penalty. Um, so we'll be talking a lot about that. And we have, by the way. You can right now go back and look at the ERV podcast we've done. But ventilation is extremely important for health. Health should trump energy, but there is there are ways to ventilate effectively that have very minimal energy impacts. And those are energy recovery ventilators or heat recovery ventilators. The last of the five principles is filter. This is huge, right? What is in the air can be trapped with proper filtration. This means managing the approach and the velocity. It does not just, and the system, not just putting in a good filter.
Okay, so buckle up. We're going to go in now. We're going to be talking about start with a good enclosure. So the very first step to start with a good enclosure is to start with a good enclosure design, right? This is why we avail ourselves of the expertise of enclosure consultants and mechanical consultants, right? And that's, if that second one surprised you, just let's just pause for a moment. The mechanical system, the interior of that is the interior of your home. So if there are any issues with the air quality inside your ducts or your plenums or your chassis or your equipment, your filter cavities, cabinets, excuse me, that's inside your home, right? But when we say start with a good enclosure, chances are most people immediately go to the walls, the roof, things like that. Um, where I want to start today is actually to just to think very broadly about homes as uh, environmental separators, but not just that, homes as um, systems that society uses to live in, right? And so the earliest rules around these systems that we lived in, the earliest that I've found, were kind of like the ancient building codes, right? I think we've all heard of the Hammurabi building code where where the person that built the house, if it fell down on somebody's family, their son would be killed, right? So talk about code enforcement, right? That's pretty intense. Even earlier than that, yeah, that was around 1700 BC, King Hammurabi in Babylon. Um, the earliest codes were actually basically public health codes, right? We, we needed fresh drinking water, and we also needed somewhere to put the waste products that came out of us. So we started to separate those, and, you know, pee downstream would be the simplest. And, um, but, you know, the Indus Valley in, let me look up here. The Indus Valley, there's a city called Lothal, 2350 B.C. They actually had indoor toilets, and they had pipes that led, I don't know if they're actual pipes, there was some sort of brickwork pipe, like the first sewers that led this waste product either into cesspits or uh, into the water downstream of where they took it. Rome had the Cloaca Maxima, right? This giant first indoor plumbing system, right? Indoor, sanit- not, not indoors, it was under the city, the sanitation system. So we have had a lot of building codes for a long time. Um, fire code, another natural consequence of, of trying to be smart about how we and where we live and how we build where we live. We had the, the fires in the 17th century in London, the 18th century, no, 19th century in Chicago. And so fire codes came into being, but it was not until the early 20th century, so the early 1900s, that the first national building codes came up in the U.S. And quote-unquote, they exist to, quote, minimize risks to property and building occupants, right? So we had the energy codes, we had the structural codes, we have the IBC, the IRC, I mean, this is whole list, right? The, I, the ICC now, International Code Council. And it is not out of the question that as we as a society get a more sophisticated and expansive understanding of indoor air quality, that we will have better indoor air quality codes, right? We already have ASHRAE standards and other standards. Um, and frankly, outdoor air quality codes, right? I mean, it's a, that'd be a twisted way to talk about um, the fact that outdoor CO2 is nearly 50% higher than pre-industrial levels, right? So this is, gets into the global 
global climate catastrophe. So when I said start with a good enclosure, what came to mind, right? Probably a few basic things like simple roof lines, overhangs, air barriers, thermal bridging, you know, proper vapor control. But this is where we're going to start to dig in and really kind of get into the building science principles. We're going to recognize that a well, let's start by recognizing that a home is a piece of the Earth's atmosphere that we set aside to live our lives in. And then let's talk about the basic uh, building science principles on homes. Okay, I'm going to pause there. I'm going to stretch. You should do the same. Howdy, folks. Your producer, Miguel, here with a few important reminders while we take a musical intermission. Now that most of all of us are working from home, it's important that we do little things to stay mentally and physically healthy. As Christoph mentioned just now, it's important to take stretch breaks throughout the day. It's also important to keep track of how much water you're drinking throughout the day. And I'd recommend that you try and get as much physical exercise as is feasible during these strange times, and to try to continue to eat healthy foods for each meal. Be sure to limit how much time you spend on your phone or computer, and if you're able, try to get a few minutes of meditation each day. Hope this has been helpful, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Stay safe, and wash your hands, y'all. Okay, so uh, double buckle up. Here's where we're going to go into really classic building science, right? This is the uh, Led Zeppelin. All right, let's see. Joe Stebrick, his favorite group, I think one of them is like the uh, Dire Straits. Uh, okay. right? So this might be the Dire Straits of uh, building science. In fact, in fact, um, thinking about Joe for a minute, there is what I would call kind of like the first generation of building science consultants. This is people like Joe Stebrick, John Straub, Gary Nelson, Mark Rosenbaum, Lou Harriman, Hartwig, I and mean, we could just go on and on, Hartwig Kunzel. Um, they learned from, as far as I know, people like Gus Handicord and um, a, a lot of people up in Canada. Actually, I'm not going to be able to do this extemporaneously. but So there was like this founder's generation and the first generation, and people like me, people like um, John Semmel Hack and Graham Wright and Allison and Skyler and a bunch of people that I just didn't list, but... We are like the second generation of building science uh, appreciators, building science aficionados. And I want to be very clear, building science is at its core, it is the physical sciences applied to buildings, right? You can expand it to social science and systems theory and economics. But fundamentally, even under that, it is rigorous, it is quantitative, and it is science-based. And fortunately, no one has spent lots of money to try to discredit building science, which is just cuckoo. In fact, there are building scientists, and most of them in the, in the first generation, that somehow believe that the laws of thermodynamics stop at the enclosure and they don't apply in the environment, right, in the atmosphere. That was a little political. Um, but is it, though? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy that, that we somehow as a society are like, I'm not sure about climate science. Uh, okay, so let's talk about building science, right? So the, frankly, just two quick things about building science. I am, so building science is the, is the body of knowledge that anyone involved in delivering buildings to society should be trafficking in to do their job, right? What I mean by that is it is the the professionals involved should have this understanding in order to do their job and make decisions with proper perspective in an informed way. Given that, I am, I mean, frankly, I mean, I'm not a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm not a judgmental or critical person, but I am, a, I am astounded frequently. It becomes clear to me 
that many of the professionals involved in making important decisions for buildings are not well-versed in the basics of building science. And even more so, um, you take the subset that are, those people are not well-versed in the basics of mechanical systems, of HVAC, which is incredibly important for healthy indoor environments. So those of you listening, I'm not trying to shame you, but please share this with people. This is an important, I'm going to try to go through in a fairly clear and uh, organized way, um, the basic principles of building science. So what do buildings do? Buildings are places that create indoor environments. They're places we live, work, and play, and they should produce healthy, functional members of society, right? Um, that's what they do. They're, they're little machines to produce us, right? Uh, there are many, many dimensions of performance in buildings, not just beauty, not just energy. Um, and, you know, if we go with the machine model a little bit, there are inputs and outputs into this machine. The inputs, right, um, let's just go with three. Let's start with the first three. Energy, typically electrical energy. Potable water is an input, right? You have a connection there. I guess you could say food also is an input. Um, but that doesn't come from utility. Um, and then there's air from the atmosphere. So those three things, uh, energy, water, and air, in a very beautiful way, those are freely available from the environment, right? You get sunshine on a property. You get wind energy on a property. You have geothermal, potentially, energy below you. You have potable water coming in the form of rain or, or water that can be made potable. Uh, with the addition of some energy and filtration, and you have air from the outdoor world, which can be used to create indoor conditions, right? So those three inputs, energy, water, and air. There's another form of energy that we're still uh, liking to send into our homes, which is gas and propane. Hopefully that's ending. Um, there are lots of physical resources uh, besides food, right, associated with the structure and the enclosure and the finishes and all the machines, right? So. Let's just take a moment here and recognize that these physical resources, they represent a snapshot in time of material and energy flows. And what I mean by that is like, let's just take your air conditioner, right? It's got copper and aluminum and steel and plastic and insulation. All those materials came from somewhere. They required processing to arrive in the state that they're useful as an air conditioner. And then they are not going to always be an air conditioner. They are going to go back, hopefully, for a second lap and be used. Currently, our society doesn't think about that. We put them in this place called away. <laughs> we throw them away. And, you know, what we call recycling, except for some metals, is really more accurately called downcycling. So electricity, water, air, gas, physical resources, data. This is a very important one, right? Miguel is a healthy, functional member of society because he's a very good consumer of data. Um, we also put people into these homes. <laughs> and then the outputs, right? The biggest one is healthy, happy people. You, listening, are one of the most high embodied energy resources on the planet, right? All the energy that went into your house is actually there to serve you. All the food that might have traveled around the globe to get to you, right? The chair you're sitting on, the car you're driving, whatever it is. High embodied resource. So that investment of resources hopefully is doing more than just having you lay about and watch Game of Thrones, and I'm not ragging on Game of Thrones. I think everybody stopped watching Game of Thrones after the last season. It was so bad, <laughs> nobody went back. 
<laughs> okay, or whatever you're watching. And I think we do need some distraction and entertainment right now, but not too much. So other outputs besides happy, healthy people, right? There is waste products. There's trash. There's recycling or downcycling. There's gray water. There's black water. There's compost, right? So the point is that a home is a machine with inputs and outputs, and we, we know what we want this machine to do, and fundamentally we want it to create healthy, happy, uh, functional members of society enjoying well-being, right? Enjoying a good, vibrant life. So that is not classic building science. Classic building science will tell you, here's what the building enclosure does. The building enclosure is an environmental separator, creates indoor conditions, but it also has three main functions. First list. The building's three main functions are to support, typically to support the roof, support the walls, right? To control and that's where we get into the control layers, and to provide finishes, surface finishes, like outdoor and indoor surfaces. So the three roles of the building enclosure are support, control, and function. Let's talk about control layers now. So the control layers, the main four that we talk a lot about, and we'll start, stay with these for the first few minutes here, the main four control layers are rain, air, vapor, and thermal. Right? These are ones that typically a lot of people can list, just rain, air, vapor, thermal. If you pull out two from that list, air and thermal, those two control functions together define the thermal envelope. A thermal envelope has two important requirements. The materials that form, let's say, the thermal control layer need to be continuous and touching. Contiguous is another way to say touching. So they need to be continuous and contiguous. The air control layer, continuous and contiguous. These control layers are responding to, and we'll get to the full list of control layers in a minute here, but the control layers are responding to environmental factors that are affecting buildings. You know, they are, these buildings, we put them outside, right? They need to be beautiful, but this is a very specific type of aesthetic beauty that lives outdoors, right? So it needs to be um, recognized that it's gonna be dealing with these five things, right? Any building that is put outdoors is going to deal with, very strongly, with electromagnetic radiation. UV through the visible to infrared. These are very powerful damage functions. So radiation is the first one. The second one is water. And I mean by that liquid water, rainwater, groundwater. Very powerful damage functions as well. Wind. Wind itself can be... a right, in the form of a tornado or hurricane, can be a very powerful damage function. Wind can also drive bulk water or vapor or pollutants from the outdoor into the indoors. So another environmental factor is wind. And the fourth environmental factor is water vapor. This is very important for um, those of us living in humid climates. It's actually, I shouldn't just said that, it's very important for all of us because in cold climates, water vapor is important. It's just not outside coming in as much. Um, and the last one is good old heat, or the absence of heat is known as cold, um, or the reduction of molecular vibration is known as cold. So heat, we're probably not going to talk much about that, but it moves in three ways, conduction, convection, and radiation. So just to recap, there's five environmental factors affecting buildings, radiation, water, wind, water vapor, and heat. So the building enclosure has these control functions to deal with those environmental factors, right? So 
what we have is I have 10 here. I have a list of 10 control functions. So the first one is rain, which is bulk water, right? So it's liquid water. The next one is air. The next one is vapor. The next one is thermal. And then the environmental separator also needs to be able to control pests, fire, light, vibration, the microbiome. We don't know exactly what to do with that yet, but we'll talk more about that. And then there's maybe a tenth one coming now, which is this idea of passive survivability. Like, how do all these things work without energy-using systems? But really the big ones are still rain, air, vapor, thermal. We can't trivialize fire and pests. Uh, light is a big deal, especially for sleep. But we're going to focus on the first four right now in this uh, episode. So number one, the first one of the control functions is rain also known as bulk water, because every industry needs a specific language that makes it sound intelligent. Um, so in bulk water, there's rain and groundwater. And the environmental separator, which is our building, right, has a foundation, walls, roof, windows, and doors. All of those receive rain. Not all of those receive groundwater, but they all need to be set up to deal with bulk water, liquid water. So mainly, basically speaking, right, you have the roof and the walls that deal with the rain, and then the ground control is dealt with by using gravity as your friend. <laughs> you have site grading, and you have good drainage, and you have good capillary breaks. I mean, the, the fundamental point with, with bulk water is you have to deal with it. You cannot ignore it and hope for the best. Like if your building leaks water, that's a big problem, right? So I'm gonna resort the previous list of control functions because I am aware that this episode is about air quality. So we are really talking about um, building science and moisture control because moisture control is gonna make the building durable, it's gonna to lead to indoor environmental conditions that are safe and healthy. Right? So if we resort the previous list um, for moisture control, you end up with rainwater or groundwater, which is called bulk water. So number one, let's say bulk. I'm going to use bulk because I'm a building science consultant. So number one, bulk water. Number two, capillarity. So capillary drip. Crap, uh, I'm going to use bulk water because I'm a building science consultant. Number one, bulk water. Number two, water driven by capillary action capillarity. Number three, air transported water vapor. So that's the air control air, but it's about water. And number four, water vapor diffusion, right? So that is also water vapor, but moving through a material, right? This is where perms come in. Remember perms, one perm means one grain of water per hour per square foot per inch of mercury. So one perm means a certain amount of water under certain conditions got in. One grain, by the way, 7,000 grains in a pint or in a pound. Yeah, 7,000 grains in a pound, and a pint is about a pound of water. Okay, so here we go. We are going to talk about building science and moisture control. We're going to talk about four functions. We're going to talk about bulk water, capillarity, air transported vapor, and vapor diffusion. So the first one is bulk water. 
Now, bulk water, the very first thing was site grading. Quick story, house in our neighborhood, Miguel. They tore down the old house, and the house had this beautiful iron fence around it. And the fence has this about 12-inch tall concrete base all around the bottom of it. And really lovely fence. So they tore down the old house, and they put in, gosh, this is like eight duplexes or something. This is incredible, the density going in. But they didn't tear down the fence, and they didn't tear down the concrete base that goes around it. But they really wanted to maximize these buildings where they're as tall as they can be, and they put them as close to the ground as they can be. So what you have is you have a property surrounded by a 12-inch wall, and then about 12 inches lower than the top of this wall. I mean, the wall has a fence on it. But lower than the top of this wall, you have the top of the slab. So basically, they've created the, the site equivalent of Holland or New Orleans <laughs> or something. like. It's just, so what I'm getting at is the, the first like most basic principle of a home is do not build a home underwater uh, in, or in, a, in the bottom of a bowl, which is what these people do. And now I can see they're going to tie a wooden fence onto the iron fence. And ever since the day they first poured the slab, I'm like, what? <laughs> anyway, so somebody's too busy to stop and pay attention to which way gravity flows. But I guarantee the homeowners, when they move in here, they're going to notice. Um, we get some serious, serious rainfall events here in Central Texas. So the first one, first way we control groundwater is we make sure that there's this thing called downhill happening. In fact, the IRC has a rule that you have to have six inches of fall within the first 10 feet of the house. So the lot shall be graded. I love that the codes use shall. Thou shall <laughs> grade your lot. Okay, so the second thing with rain and groundwater, you know, again, the main thing is you have to deal with it, and you have to deal with it skillfully, right? Um, water is a big damage function, right? It takes things apart, right? So how do you deal with it skillfully? The second way is you drain everything. So this means you drain the site. We just talked about that. You drain the building. You drain the assembly. You drain the opening. You drain the component, and you drain the material. These all come from Building Science Corporation Press. Um, they're really, it's a great list. It's pretty organized. We've already talked about draining the site. Draining the building. All of you architects listening, hear this. Ding, ding, ding. Sloping roofs. Wow. Gravity. <laughs> so simple roof lines. Yeah, super important. Here's one. Overhangs. What? Overhangs are profoundly impactful to water flow and draining the building. As soon as you say to the wall, you don't get a roof overhang, you should think of that wall, treat that wall, detail that wall much more like a roof. Um, so sloping roofs, simple roof lines, and overhangs. This is all very important for draining the building. So are two more things. One is draining to gutters, right? And the gutters should land on sloped grades. So another one then draining the building. And the last one, and this is where a lot of building science has focused, but maybe not without the proper perspective, right? And this is using flashings properly, right? So just one more time. So we talked about draining the site, draining the building. Draining the building is sloped roofs with simple roof lines and overhangs that drain to gutters. And then also recognizing that water flows downhill, we use flashings properly. And just as a quick aside, water doesn't always flow downhill. Water under the presence of 
uh, wind can actually can actually flow uphill. So the next one is you're going to drain the assembly. And if we think about roofs or walls, these are the main assemblies that need draining. I mean, but below grade walls too. But basically there are two types. There are what's called barrier assemblies. Another term for this is face sealed. This means like um, the outside of the space shuttle. That's a barrier assembly. The outside of a submarine, that's a barrier assembly. Much more important for us that build buildings are screened assemblies or assemblies with drainage planes, right? This is the vented and ventilated rain screen systems. In fact, let's see if I can do this. The full name for a ventilated rain screen is a back ventilated pressure equalizing rain screen assembly. So it's not a product, it's an assembly. It's an assembly to deal with rain and it equalizes pressures to reduce the wind-driven rain on the, the uh, water shedding assembly and it's back ventilated in order to achieve pressure, pressure equalization. So ventilated, remember, means it's open at the top and the bottom and vented means it's just open at the bottom to let liquid water out. So, these ventilated rain screens impress your friends. Tell them it's actually a back-ventilated, pressure-equalizing rain screen assembly. <laughs> <laughs> and they will say, you have totally lost it. But you haven't. You know your job. You know what these things do. You know what they mean. We have way too much of this. At the salad bar of building design, we have people that don't know the difference between a condiment and a poison. And they design buildings in ways that are completely inappropriate because they think, oh, it looks better, or it costs less, or, it's, or they don't even design it. They just say, framer, do what you know. Cornice crew, do what you know. So let's talk just for a few minutes about the code. The code says, shall again, exterior walls shall provide weather-resistant um, coatings. What's the word? I think it says, um, walls shall provide a weather-resistant exterior. That's what I'm going to guess. Um, creating a wall envelope or something. And the envelope shall, I love that term, include flashing. So when we're talking about what is at the back of the back ventilated pressure equalizing rain screen assembly. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> it's either these big rolls, these big typically white rolls of sheet applied products, right? So it could be black rolls of um, felt, which if it were sold today, it would be known as a, a smart um, you know, smart, smart material because it's dynamically uh, vapor, def vapor controlled or something. Um, but these big sheets, you know, like so that the, I'm not going to say manufacturer name, but the, either the woven microperforated house wraps or the spun, spun bonded house wraps. These are the big sheets, right? And the big sheets, right? They're put on with the bottom layer first in shingle fashion. So because they are the bulk water control shedding layer, and they are put on with tapes because they are also part of the air control layer. So sheet applied is the first one. We have lots of good self-adhered uh, rain screen materials, right? And we have lots of good fluid applied rain screen materials. Vapor open and vapor closed are available in both self-adhered and fluid applied. So just a quick, what we're talking about is just draining the assembly using a rain screen assembly. The rain screen material itself can be either sheet applied or self-adhered or fluid applied. So if you need to rewind, I think that's pretty clear. I'm going to go on. Draining the opening. 
So back when I was a younger uh, building science geek, which isn't that long ago, 20 years ago or so, the mantra was you never rely on the power of sticky. You don't rely on chemical seals. Everything from the tip of the roof down past the tip of the gutter was relied on with physical layered shingle fashioned materials, right? As far as I can tell today, intelligent people agree that you can rely on the power of sticky. I didn't ever hear the repeal of the rule. <laughs> that sticky was was now something that is fine and gravity and shingle fashion is is oh so outdated. No, I'm kidding. It's still important. But the point is that I will agree that done properly, um, there are tapes and sealants now that have very impressive, um, durable, physical properties. And I just want to point out that the proper materials are always the ones that you can guarantee have been installed in the way that they're going to work for the long term, right? So you don't just go buy the most expensive sticky SIGA tape, um, but you actually treat your job site as though it's a team situation and you talk with the team. You say, hey, what materials are you familiar with? What assemblies can you build in a way that they'll work? But we're actually down on the, the fourth one. We're draining, the third one was draining the assembly. Now we're draining the opening. And what this means is window flashing, door flashing, roof flashings, like kickout flashings, very important, right? These, I still would recommend that these be done in the old school shingle fashioned, uh, not relying on the chemical seal. But if, if you've got a zip system, it's pretty hard to get a shingle fashion head flash above your window. You know, in fact, just a quick aside, a story about that. Same thing, I walk my dogs a lot, I walk my neighborhood a lot, uh, more so now. I mean, my neighborhood is like a promenade recently. No one's going to work. You've seen it? I've seen neighbors I've never even knew yeah. existed before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look up and down the street and they're all standing far apart, but I'd probably say I saw 50 people yeah. on one road. I'm like, holy moly, like, <laughs> everyone out playing. Okay, but we're talking about draining the opening, and we are talking about window and door flashing. And one of the things I see a lot is like, I'll see the zip, you know, good old green, you know, the, the zip system being used all over. Um, but then they have done a head flashing at the top of the window that is not the zip product. It's neither the fluid applied nor the tape. It is just some other product. And as far as I know, the phenol resins and the tape that Huber sells have been engineered to work together. So this is why, I mean, this reminds me of the happy hour we just did on air, air purifiers. But it's as though, like, knives aren't dangerous, but you're not going to hand one to your one-year-old, right? So this whole thing about relying on the power of sticky, it's dangerous because... It works sometimes, but you got to know your stuff and you got to know how to do it right. So I, I would frankly be more conservative and say, when in doubt, do not rely on the power of sticky because you cannot guarantee it's going to be put into hands that do the job skillfully. So the caveat is that if you know the system well, yeah. go for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if, if you're the general contractor or you're the architect or you're the owner, 
you can avail yourself of knowledge and expertise. And we have lots of clients that do this. It's, it's exciting to watch them do it. Okay, so the last two, I'm going to lump them together for the sake of time. We're going to drain the components and the materials, right? This means we drain the windows and doors We drain with, with pan flashings and with sill flashings. And then here's the big one. We coat the materials so that they do not absorb water, right? So we paint our building. Wow, imagine that. Um, we put metal on the roof or shingle fashion asphaltic shingles or clay tiles on the roof, right? We just make sure we're draining all these materials too, right? We're going to paint the windows. We're going to make sure that the materials and the components can dry and they're not going to have absorbed a lot of water. Okay, so all of that was in dealing with bulk water. And remember, it was bulk water, capillarity, and then water vapor transport and air diffusion. So the second one is capillarity. And now when we're dealing with capillary action, right, we, we probably all kind of know what it is. If you stick a, a brick in a small, a shallow bowl of water, the water will move up through the brick in the small pores and holes, right? Trees, that's the, always the example. The, the lumens in the wood, they can move water from the ground level up to the height of a 30-story building, something like 150 gallons a day going up a redwood tree. And this is, um, if I can remember it right, it's intermolecular adhesion and surface tension working together. Um, it's a very, very powerful force. And fundamentally, it means between the concrete and the wood, use a very functional capillary break. There are many other places to put capillary breaks, right? The vapor barrier beneath the concrete is another one. Um, and that includes the beams, right? You want to fully wrap your grade beams on slabs. Um, sometimes my contractors would argue with me, and I'm like, no, 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 do it. So capillary break at bottom plates is very important. Also termite shields but that's the pests function. We're not going to talk about that at bottom plates. So to learn more about capillarity, I would refer you, just Google the word Joe Stiebrick. That's spelled L-S-T-I-B-U-R-E-K. So Google Joe Stiebrick, uh, the water molecule. Awesome seminar. Okay, so that was the second one, capillarity. Notice how short that was. You're welcome. Um, water vapor transported by either air or diffusion, right? So... Let's see, how can I treat this in a kind of a simple way? I'm going to start with diffusion. So if we have a small hole in an unpainted piece of sheetrock, you'll end up with about, so it's a one inch by one inch hole. Um, you'll end up with about a thousand ounces of water over a heating season going through. If you eliminate that hole and only rely on vapor diffusion, you'll end up with something like 10 ounces of water. So a hundred times less, right? So this is where you always, this is the data point that came from Building Science Corporation where you hear about, at least I believe that's where it came from, you always hear this two orders of magnitude, right? So when you're talking about water vapor as a damage function, right, it's very clearly a, a large amount of water vapor can enter a building, especially in central Texas or anywhere with green grass in the summer. You have a lot of humidity, you probably have a lot of water vapor moving into the inside of the home that you don't want. But the point of this is that vapor diffusion is far, far smaller of an effect than air-driven moisture, right? So again, four by eight sheet of unpainted sheetrock, 
A thousand ounces will go through a one inch square hole. Over a heating season, 10 ounces through that same sheet without a one inch square hole. So uh, water molecules, by the way, are profoundly small. There's something like 100 picometers, and a pico is like a trillionth of a meter. So profoundly, profoundly small. So we're coming up toward the end because I can feel like I'm, my brain feels like mush. Um, but I have a couple more points I want to make. And the last one is going to be, well, not the last one. The next one is going to be air control, right? So if we have water vapor outside and we don't want it inside, we need to recognize that there are three things required to um, cause that air to go from inside to outside. One is there has to be something to leak. So there has to be air with water vapor in it. That's pretty likely to be there. Second two, or the next one, the second and third are there has to be a hole and there has to be a pressure differential, right? So we already talked about that a good air barrier needs to be contiguous, right? The, the materials need to align. They need to touch. They need to be sealed at gaps, cracks, and seams, right? Very basic stuff, but often not implemented in practice. And then these holes, right? There are very common holes, right? Let's list a few. Walls adjoining a porch roof. By the way, you can go to Energy Star uh, Enclosure Checklist, Energy Star version 3 Enclosure Checklist. Google those things and you'll get it off. But if I, I'm doing a lot of these by memory. So you have walls at the where the porch roof adjoins a wall, walls behind showers and tubs, behind fireplaces, Attic knee walls, skylight shafts. Oh my gosh, skylight shafts need an air barrier on the, the attic side of them. Um, rim and band joists generally, particularly at the garage. Um, chases for mechanicals and flues, often communicating air in the form of a big hole. Whenever we put in plumbing, piping, electrical wires, we hack the building full of holes. We need to seal them. Light fixtures, smoke detectors, speakers, all the things that cause ceiling penetrations, those are big holes. We've already mentioned windows and doors. Those are uh, not just thermal wounds. They can be wounds to the air barrier if they're not detailed right, and they're, they're rarely detailed right. And then the last one, the one that's like often really overlooked, I mean, it's not crazy uncommon to find a builder that's really on their game with the enclosure, but that same builder is often on holiday when it comes to their duct system. They don't oversee the installation. I think we'll talk about this at the very end here, but leaky duct systems that allow air to leak from inside to outside, those are holes in the air control layer. And they're very common and they're not treated with enough respect. So something to leak is heat, air, and water. I should have mentioned that, not just the air. Um, and then the last piece, remember, you need something to leak, you need a hole, and you need a pressure differential. And there's three main ways that we have pressure differentials, and they are wind or weather-driven pressures, right? So like a tornado is a pretty strong pressure differential. Um, even if your enclosure stands up to it, it's going to drive a lot of air through your enclosure. It's going to try to. Um, and in fact, in a tornado, you probably want to open a window to pressure equalize. Um, there's stack effect and reverse stack effect, and basically this is that hot air is less dense than cold air, so it rises to the top. Cold air is more dense than hot air, so it sinks to the bottom. Stack and reverse stack effect. As this air moves, it creates pressure differentials, which will drive through holes to move air from inside to outside. 
And then the last one, which is big and again involves the air conditioning system, the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system generally, are mechanically created pressure differentials, right? These are dryers, um, vent fans, oven range hoods, but hugely your air handler fan. So if your air handler air distribution system leaks, this can create a mechanically driven large pressure differential that will pull air in a humid climate, an unfortunate uh, alignment of factors that often happens. The air conditioner kicks on, it depressurizes the home, and it pulls air through the walls. So when it stops, the air that is humid from outside is stopped in the wall and it stays there and it um, participates in aqueous chemistry causing life and chemical reactions. Okay, so I'm not going to dig into thermal control like conduction, con convection, and radiation. We can, we'll get to that at some point, but we're really talking about air quality and it is very unlikely that um, thermal control uh, is going to be the largest driver of air quality. Uh, it is very important to make sure that you avoid thermal bridging, but I think we know this, right? It's very important to know that thermal control layers need to be contiguous and touching. So that's it, right? We've gotten to the end. Um, instead of me reviewing it for you right now, you can just rewind if you want to recap it again. But the couple of basics here of getting to the end of the building enclosure aspect of things is that you really want to be thoughtful about controlling moisture. And that really starts with the design, um, at the design phase. You want it to be climate appropriate, and you want it to be team appropriate and material appropriate. Meaning like, what does your team know how to do? To the extent you can always bias toward higher quality materials. What does that mean? What makes a material higher quality? Well, hopefully it means it's not laden with chemical additives that are gonna be the gift that keeps on giving as far as indoor air quality. Hopefully it's made with sustainable materials that have been produced sustainably. Um, I'm thinking about wood there. And then beyond that, hopefully it's made with low embodied materials, right? We really need to wean ourselves off of the, the concrete habit. We're like concrete addicts. I just read the other day, three tons of concrete are used for every person on the planet right now. <laughs> you know, and, and most of that is with this just very, very regressive kind of high embodied energy process. But all this comes together is what we want to do is we are we're still talking about the very first principle of the five principles for good indoor air quality, right? So start with a good enclosure means start with by creating a reliable separation between indoor-outdoor conditions that will be durable and perform in that separation function, right? So this was the first principle in terms of healthy homes, healthy indoor air quality. So as a wrap-up to the first principle, start with a good enclosure. How does the enclosure relate to indoor air quality, right? Well, the enclosure, I've often said this, you've heard it the, probably if you listened. The enclosure is the gift that keeps on giving. The enclosure does the heavy lifting. You have one good chance to get it right, and then it's inconvenient to fix forever. Very direct with the enclosure is the enclosure defines the occupant's breathing zone. So whatever is in there is in there. And then the point that I've brought up a few times, I really want to emphasize it here at the end, it has to do with mechanical systems. The inside of your mechanical system, every bit of it, from the return through the system out the supplies 
is part of the indoor space, right? So what's happening in there is very important. This means is dust being captured? Is moisture being controlled? Is turbulence being understood? Are the filters operating when people are in the building? Are they have, do they have the right flow and approach velocities across them? Right? We'll definitely be digging into these in, in the third, fourth, and fifth principles. But I really want to make sure you hear me here that um, when we say start with a good enclosure, it fundamentally means start with a good design, which means start with a good team, and it fundamentally means make sure that it's done in a reliable way and that it doesn't ignore the mechanical systems. So that was a lot. Um, that was uh, the first of the five principles. We'll dig in next time to minimize indoor emissions. Uh, and we'll take it from there. Thank you all very much for listening. And be safe and stay healthy and sane.